We would like to acknowledge that this podcast has been recorded on traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and we'd like to pay our respects to Elders past and present. Hello, I'm Joanna. And I'm Zara. And you're listening to episode three of I Used to Play Piano, the podcast for listeners of music, doers of music, and lovers of music. Today we have a lot planned for the episode. We have our feature piece. Did you guess what it is? I've been posting some sneaky hints on our Facebook and Instagram pages. (laughs) (laughs) So if you'd guessed Marla, you'd be right. This month we're going to be looking at the composer and conductor and his symphony in number one in D major. Awesome. We're also going to introduce a bit of a new segment where we talk about some of the challenges we've faced and things that we've experienced and learnt along the way of our own personal journeys in music. Um, In the future, we'll cover things like performance anxiety, something I have a lot of experience in, (laughs) Um, maybe finding a job, looking at your career. Um, We can take a bit of an in-depth look at music therapy. And of course, if you've got any suggestions for topics or if you'd like to come in and talk about something that you're really interested in, we'd love to hear from you. Yes, you're very, very welcome. But for this month, we're going to be talking about teachers. This is something that a few listeners have been talking to us about since episode one, where Ioana talked about how she took piano lessons during her honours year in uni from a teacher that didn't actually play piano. What? (laughs) So we thought we might um, talk a little bit more in detail about how we went about finding and selecting our own teachers, some of our experiences and how teachers got us to where we are today. Awesome. But first, how was your month in music, everyone? Zara, what did you get up to this month? I noticed that Rewire had a performance practice event. Um, how did that go? Yeah, that went, that went really, really well. So um, for those of you who haven't caught up on episode two yet, Rewire is an organization that I'm involved with that promotes uh, music in the brain and research and programs that promote the use of music and for neurological purposes, I guess. And at the moment, we're running some performance practice programs for young students and older students who are preparing for exams or performances, and they want a safe and kind of comfortable environment to play in. And we talked a bit last time about how the the exam room is not necessarily the best um, environment for a budding musician to gain confidence in. No, but it's often the, the environment in which they only have the oppo- only have that opportunity to play in and perform in. That's right. So with Rewire, we run some performances at retirement villages, and it's really about um, not only giving the performers a really cool space and a unique space to perform in, but also um, helping to um, invite different. Um, sectors of the community together so you know having people who are living in retirement villages many of them said it's so nice just to see um, young people coming into the center and mingling with them and talking to them it was a really lovely event and we had there was one moment actually where um, one student was a bit nervous and had a bit of a memory lapse in the middle of the performance <laughs> and you know nice. my, my heart was in my mouth for the poor kid I think we've all, we've all been there <laughs> yeah and when he um when he kind of got on track you could kind of almost hear like you could hear people smiling I know that sounds weird oh, but everyone cool. was kind of like yeah. yeah and then they gave him the biggest clap at the end and all, all of the residents came up and told him how proud they were of him and oh, that how brave good. he was and you know that 
that's the best thing that you can do is to just keep going. So, you know, that turned what could have been a potentially really um, nerve wracking and, you know, negative experience into something really positive. So that was really lovely. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, And other than that, I mean, I've just been mostly busy with the PhD work and research oh, yes. land. How's so, that going? Yeah, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> You've only just started. You've got another three years. I know. <laughs> but no, it, it's going really well. I'm enjoying it. But it has kept me a bit busy. I haven't been out and about to see any gigs or anything lately. Mm. How about yourself? Uh, I haven't really done much this month. Been, yeah, really busy with work. Yeah, but I mean, you did tell me you had a concert this morning, right? <laughs> oh yeah, that was just, it wasn't really much though. It was just sort of an Anzac Day service thing that my brass band does every year. Um, just a bit of a march down High Street in Preston. Oh, nice. And then the service outside um, the town hall and council offices and then down to the RSL for where they give us some food and we play a bit of a bit, bit of music for them. Oh, how awesome. Yeah, That's it's fantastic. not a bad, bad gig, but it's just like... <laughs> I like that you were like, I didn't do any music this month, but you literally had a gig this morning. But it's, yeah. it's that kind of thing where it's, I guess, it's such a part of your life that maybe you don't see it as your musical outlet. It's more yeah, of a... Yeah, it's just something we had to do. Yeah, right. It's funny, isn't it? Like, I think I'm similar because I use music every day in work and, you know, I'm always playing stuff and doing things. But I think it's maybe it's not music for you. It's music for an event. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it's nice to just be able to go and watch something different or to sit down at the piano and play by yourself and just have that moment of music for you. Yeah, it's much, much different. But besides that, um, I didn't really do anything uh, but actually, going back to the topic of rewire, oh yeah, um, would I just wanted to remind people to sign up for um, an opportunity to perform in an open mic, mic open <laughs> mic night that Zara and I are organising alongside Rewire. So if you're tuning in for the first time, welcome. But last <laughs> month, Zara invited you all to get your instruments out and prepare something. Um, to play to friends and families if I used to play piano. That's right. So we're looking at hosting a bit of a night where we can get anyone who's, you know, maybe you've just started learning an instrument and you've never had a chance to perform. It might be your first performance or it might be that you're, um, you know, you used to play and then you went off and started a career in a different field and you haven't had a chance to play since, you know, you were studying. Mm. Um, We'd love for people to come down and join us. So we're calling it a bit of an open mic night, but I think what we'll try and do is get people to sign up beforehand so we know how many people are coming and things like that. Um, So if you, we don't have a date yet. We're thinking in the second half of the year sometime. So if you've got, um, if you have a piece that you're really keen on cracking out and or an excuse to play let us know get in touch we um you can get in touch via our facebook page or send us an email at i used to play podcast at gmail.com and we'll start talking about how we can fit you in it'd be great to have some listeners there performing Joanna and i are going to play yes we are yep we're gonna practice Yes, we're going to do <laughs> it's gonna that. be great. Doesn't have to be a solo thing. If you've got your part of a small ensemble, um, then you're more than welcome to play something as well. Absolutely, and it doesn't have to be classical either. No, it can not be at um, all. anything. It can be any type of music you like. That's right. So I'm pretty excited, and I think I should really start working on some things <laughs> to play. <laughs> yes, yes, me too. <laughs> um, so in our first ever episode, we spoke a little bit about our musical journeys and how we got to where we are today. I think that um, we both agree that piano and studying piano played a pretty big part in the decisions that we made that took us to our current jobs and sort of even how we 
um, still think about piano and still play in our own ways. And made a podcast about it. And yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, part of that, though... And we touched on this briefly in the first episode was having certain teachers that we learned from throughout our piano careers and the impact they had on our playing and the way that we approach music. Um, so you might recall that I mentioned that my teacher in my honours year wasn't actually a piano a pianist, but a, um, he wasn't a piano either. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a great teacher learning from a piano. <laughs> Probably the best ideal teacher. Hey, um, he wasn't actually a pianist, but an architect. So, so I'm just picturing Knight Rider, but in piano form. Remember Knight Rider? Yes. Oh, that's so Ioana, no, you have to play the C sharp. <laughs> oh dear. All right. Sorry. Um, no, no, all good. So yeah. So my teacher in my honors year wasn't actually a pianist, but he was an architect, and yet I still made the choice to study with him. And the reason was because I felt that he had a really good understanding of music and that's where I really wanted to focus on next. I had just had a teacher who focused very much on technique and sort of realised that perhaps he had give, he'd taught me everything that he could and I wasn't really getting much out of it. So, you know, I moved on to, to Michael and I learnt so much so much off him and I think my playing in, um, improved um, so much more by having his knowledge um, passed on to me and then being able to also incorporate that into my own playing. So today we just wanted to talk a little bit about choosing teachers or having to work with teachers that are allocated to us that we might not necessarily uh, get on with very well or who might clash personality-wise and how to deal with that. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's really important. Like I don't want this to sound like we're whinging about our old teachers either because I think no. all of my teachers were fabulous yeah, you know except you. for one but <laughs> I don't even remember their names so that's okay <laughs> they were that bad um I was quite young but I think you know it's it is important to acknowledge though that at different times in your in your learning that you do need to get different things from different people you know and I think um I was fortunate and uh, fortunate enough to have teachers who encouraged me to go out and do lessons with other teachers. Mm, um, that's great. Yeah, I know there are some teachers who are a bit funny about that. Mm. They they feel a bit nervous, but I often think, you know, you need to get lots of different people's perspective. There's and as a teacher myself, there's only so much that I can offer my students. I mm. can only offer my own knowledge and there's certain things or a lot of things that other teachers know that I have no idea about mm. or that I don't care about either, mm. <laughs> which might be relevant. Um and I think it's really important to talk about finding a teacher that matches your needs at that time, because Absolutely. I really, yeah, I really think that having the right teacher can really make or break your career or mm. your progress, I guess, but also your identity as a musician or a yeah. musical person. Um, I know, and I think we mentioned this way back in episode one, but we know a lot of people who say, I used to play piano, but my teacher told me I was no good, so I never continued or that they stopped playing because they had a really scary teacher when they were young and Mm. they they were afraid of them so they kind of just stopped playing although they clashed and um I mean it's pretty normal for kids to not want to do stuff but there's a difference between being a bit oppositional and having a teacher that just really you know that you don't get along with yeah and I know that can have a really profound impact on people's lives and the way that they use music Mm -hmm. um that's something that comes up a lot in music therapy um in discussions about you know well People might join a choir later in life because it's, you know, there's a lot of benefits, health benefits to joining choirs, but they're too nervous too because they um, they were told that they couldn't sing. Or they, and I have a lot of people, even in the choir that I run now, um, people say that when they were in choir in school, the teachers told them to lip sync, you know? Oh my gosh. Yeah. 
horrible. Yeah, it's terrible. But, you know, and these kind of things have had, you know, scarring impacts and it's meant that they haven't done the things that they wanted to do or that might have been helpful for them because they were too nervous. I have a friend as well. I won't say her name because I don't want to embarrass her, but she's um, she loves music. She's involved in lots of different musical projects, but she won't play or sing. And even if I've like tried to encourage her just to do it for fun, you know, just have a bit of fun, doesn't matter, no pressure, she absolutely won't because she was so scarred from those early experiences. Oh, that's so horrible. Yeah. And I think it's just one of those things that, you know, as a teacher, I'm really aware of, you know, if there's a student that I don't particularly like. No, but any of my students listening, it's not you. (laughs) No, but, you know, there's obviously, you know, everyone has different personalities work well together, different others don't. But I think it's really important that, you know, if you're a teacher and you have a student that you don't get along with or that frustrates you, that you make sure that you don't take it out on them personally, you know, and that you work with that because you can really impact someone's, you know, future in that sense. Yeah. Um, It's it's quite funny when you were mentioning about um, before about client people who have joined choirs, but you know they were told to lip sync when they were younger. It just reminds me of when I was doing my research last year. Um, I came across a pretty interesting comment. So I was looking at um, uh, the value of music education in um, schools in Victorian government schools, and um, I was also comparing it to how music educa- education is included in Finnish schools in Finland, and part of the reason I chose Finland was because their education philosophy is sort of um, um, based on a German philosophy called Bildung, which is about developing the holistic person in every aspect of the person. So they're intelligent and academic as well as their emotional um, sides of of being. And I can't remember if it was from the Australian or the Finland um, research, but I remember coming across an article that said um, a lot some teachers are, you know, don't like including um, music in their classrooms because when they were younger, the way that music was taught to them was basically just singing in a group and sometimes they had to sing solos in front of everyone and just were put on the spot and it wasn't a good experience and they were quite traumatised by that. Wow. So it's just quite interesting then. Oh, like, that's you know, awful. That influences the way that they, or whether they're, or they're willing to teach music um, in their own yeah. classroom and are put off by it. That's so sad because, you know, it could be something that could be really positive for them to use, but they're too, you know, their past experience has impacted mm. that. Um, I guess, you know, as a teacher, I teach um, young people, so from, you know, primary school age and up, and I have taught adults in the past as well. Um, but I certainly know that my teachers have really influenced my teaching style to the point where every now and then I'll be like, I'll say something to a student and in my head I'll think, oh, that's a really Kenji thing to say. (laughs) (laughs) My old teacher, Kenji Fujimura, who's amazing. Um, You know, he he was a real question teacher. He'd always ask lots of questions. Psychology, almost. (laughs) You know, he'd always, you know, if I'd if I'd say I need help with this, he, you know, it would be what would what do you think you should do? Yeah. You know, and I at the time I found it frustrating, but now like I really think it's a really great way to teach Mm. and I find myself doing it a lot as well. Um, So I think, you know, I definitely pick up on traits from my teachers and from other teachers that I've had as well. I know I used some really stupid analogies or like, (laughs) you know. Some analogies can be pretty good though, but they work. That's the thing. Well, and it's true. And I think when you're playing an instrument, as much as it is like you can see what you're doing and you can see the, the notes on the page and the stuff, there's a lot that you can't express both musically, like, 
you know, play as if you're walking through a haunted house type mm. thing. Or also physically, you know, I know when I was doing my retraining after being injured, I, um, my teacher then, Sonia, would always say, you know, she'd, she'd use a lot of analogies to kind of explain the, the physical thing that I needed to do because it, you, I'd, in my brain, even if she gave me like, you know, you need to move, contract and re- relax these muscles or tendons or ligaments, I don't know what they are. It means nothing to me. Mm. So it'd be something like giving the keyboard a high five, you know, or um, thinking like it's an internal massage in your arm and things like that. And just those little visuals, you know, I find them really helpful. And I know sometimes I try to use things like that with my students, which don't necessarily make sense. Mm. Um, or like if you know that sometimes my students look at me and saying what are you talking about but (laughs) I think it is you know something that I've certainly picked up from my teachers and something that I've a style that I've really um really really like yeah I think it's a really good way of teaching like yeah it just helps you convey I remember once actually one of my teachers was telling me how he was um had a student who was learning one of the Haydn sonatas piano sonatas and they basically wrote up some lyrics around chocolate in order for her to like <laughs> be able to change the way that she was playing it and present a certain um, yeah story around it, yeah. which is quite interesting. I was like, "What chocolate?" Yeah, actually, I think one of your teachers might have done that with me, and I can't remember if it was Robert who was your teacher, or maybe I think it was actually Daryl. Who okay. they're part of the team of pianists, which yeah. is where you and I met. Yes, it was. <laughs> do you remember? Yeah, back in no, the day. I do remember. A long time ago now. I remember you passing a message along to me. Did I? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, yeah. at the team of pianists, um, spring school, which was awesome. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. I remember, I think it must've been Daryl. I was playing the Mozart Fantasia in D minor oh, and cool. he told me to put opera lyrics and he was kind of, um, you know, singing along going like, why, why, <laughs> you know, and then I was doing it and it felt so like, at first I was like, I'm not doing that, but the more you do it. You really start to it does help. embody it yeah, and it really, you know, especially I don't know about other instrumentalists, whether this helps, um, but it certainly helps on piano where you can't necessarily control the tone as um, easily as you can on a violin, for mm. example. It's a really, you know, you have to be much more creative with yeah. the subtle differences. Although that does remind me, I played in a trio once um, and we were trying to work out how to get this melody it was a Beethoven cello piano and clarinet trio mm. I forget which opus or whatever it was but um our little motto ended up being to sing the melody we would sing I love cream <laughs> then we kind of couldn't stop playing it without laughing uh-huh. so it kind of had a negative effect <laughs> that whole thing of keeping lyrics in is really um I think it's quite useful, useful. Yeah. yeah yeah it's funny things that we <laughs> You, you look at a concert hall and see people all in black being quite solemn and playing all seriously <laughs> behind the scenes. <laughs> They're thinking about cream and chocolate. It's so true. <laughs> um, but getting back to selecting your own teacher, Zara, in the past you've talked about um, uh, how you struggled with your playing quite a bit because of wrist injuries. Mm. Um, do you think that the teachers you had prior to your playing or, or could have stopped your injuries from occurring if they had addressed errors in your technique? Ooh, that's a tricky one. And teaching technique is tricky as well. Um, I want to say no because I obviously don't want to ascribe blame to any of my teachers Mm. because, you know, I had wonderful teachers. Um, I think I would, if there was, you know, 
something that I would say might have helped, it would be more of the education system in general. Right. Um, when I first started learning, I was learning in a caravan on an electric keyboard with five other people in the lesson. No way. <laughs> yeah, it was a That's real awesome. like 80s van <laughs> type situation. Um, and yeah, it wasn't good. But so I didn't really have any formal technique training. Mm. And when I did my honours, I actually, my thesis was about um, Alexander technique and comparing it to other techniques in playing and seeing what I found to be effective and did Alexander technique kind of fit in with piano technique. Yeah. And what I found is that there's not really any piano technique that's official. Like there's no manual guide that says, well, this is what good technique is. Yeah. And I think there is a lot more for different instruments. I know in piano there's different schools of thought on technique. Yeah. Like there's the Russian school, there's the um, Courtauld, the French. Um, Alfred Courtauld. Yeah. Method. Yeah, which is very wristy and things like that, I think. So you've got all these, like, Yamaha and Suzuki as well. Yeah, but they're not, again, they're not really much, that's more like theory technique, I think, right. rather than, I know Yamaha, and because Dan, our sound man, used to work for them and was a Yamaha poster child. <laughs> I was. don't know if you've seen the photos of he and his siblings. <laughs> well, I should try, see if I can put that photo up. It's pretty cute. It the little piano cute. kids. It is. Um, but yeah, they... Um, I, I believe they work a lot on the oral skills and the theory side of right. things okay. rather than, I don't know, maybe um, it'd be interesting if anyone has much formal experience. But when I was doing this research, I found that there wasn't really a unified kind of way of saying, well, this is helpful. Mm. And I think that, you know, as a teacher myself, I find it hard to teach technique because you never know how much because a piano you can play a note and it still sounds good mm. no matter how you play it really whereas on violin i can see that technique's a lot more important and on, on trumpet as well because you have to work on your embouchure mm-hmm. and you know positioning to be able to play something that sounds nice mm. um, whereas on piano we can kind of get away with it so i think it maybe makes it a little bit more um technique takes a back seat a bit more until you're older mm. but then by that stage you've already got bad habits ingrained yeah and as a teacher I know like when I'm teaching young kids it's a you know it's a real balance of well I can see that this technique isn't great but do I focus on that and then then they're going to get bored because they're not learning anything and you know should I just focus more on them getting through a piece successfully you know it's a real real challenging thing and I don't think there's you know be interesting if anyone's kind of encountered some really um, strict ways but I think nowadays that we've got more of an understanding of physiology mm-hmm. and um, there's a really great book called What Every Pianist Needs to Know About the Body. And if you're a piano player, I would highly recommend you read it. And I'm Who's sure it I cannot remember, but I will post it on the Facebook okay. page. But it is, I should remember because it's my Bible. I think it's Thomas someone. Could be making that up. What was it called? What Every Pianist Needs to Know About the Body. Um, Joanna's going to Google it for me, (laughs) but it's, it's my Bible and I have it on top of my piano and, um, you know, it's little things like when there's a great diagram. Oh, have you got it? Thomas Carson. Thomas Carson. Mark? Mark. Thomas Carson. Mark. Maybe Mark. (laughs) Thomas Carson Mark. We're going to have to cut this bit out. (laughs) That's okay. It's Thomas Carson Mark. Yeah. It's an amazing book. Um, it has diagrams of, you know, little things like, knowing what's in your body is really important. Like, for example, I never knew, and I kind of think I, in you know, on a subconscious level knew it, but your thumb, like it moves from the base of your palm. That's where your last knuckle is. You know, if you think oh, of your yeah. fingers all have, yeah, see? <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Your fingers all have like the knuckle that connects to your palm, then the middle one and then the top one, but your thumb only has, you know, two. 
It mm. doesn't. The third one is way down it's at the base of your palm, near your yeah. wrist. And then this is why this book is so good. It's got all these like visuals and of the what's inside your palm. Because we often, you know, I'm sure we all just kind of think of our palm as a big solid lump. Mm. But it's not. It's, no, it's, it's just of... the bones go all the way down to the wrist. There's no... Yeah, there's actually, nothing in there. It's just bones with muscle cartilage and fat more. around it. Really, yeah. um, that part could be wrong, but you know, <laughs> just it's not a solid mass. It's those fingers move in there. Like there's not bone in the the bones are the finger bones. They're yeah. really long, um, and so like knowing more about that, I think is really important. And I think that's something why I really enjoyed the Taubman technique because it is based on the physiology and it works on the premises of that. And same with Alexander technique, it it works on the basis of well the nerves are in your head. So if you're scrunching your neck, you're going to impact your fingers at some point. If some mm. part of your body is out of balance or alignment, then another part of the body is going to overcompensate for that. Yeah. So I think that nowadays maybe there could be a move to more technique yeah. and things like that. Um, to more, I guess, physiology-based technique. Yeah. But that said, I don't think it's my teacher's fault I think was your original question like I don't think I think having a better system for that I wouldn't necessarily say it was a teaching thing that said though when I did become injured and I was kind of finishing up at uni it became clear that I needed to find a teacher who specialized in that like my needs changed it wasn't enough to go to a teacher who and my teacher at the time did really help me you know there was it wasn't like he he was unhelpful but I needed someone who had an understanding of the physiology and of injury and the and how recovering from injury works like you can't just say do this and then it's better you it take it took me three years mm. really of just playing scales before I could oh gosh yeah kind of plainly getting through that and not giving up go my teacher for not letting me give up I say <laughs> I was very in the give up phase of that for a lot of it but she was um very very motivating um and kind to me mm, that's great but yes yeah, so I think it's that comes to it you know when your needs changed when your needs change, then that might be when you need to change teachers, yeah, which is yeah. what you said before about when you were done learning technique or you got to a point where you felt that you needed something else. Yeah. You went and searched for something else. I think that's think? really important to remember as well. Yeah. Like I think um, there's, a, there's a certain level of guilt involved in changing teachers and, yeah. you know, there's a level of sadness as well that you sort of know that you have to move on when you may have enjoyed having lessons from someone for so long um but it's so important to be able to recognize when you do um and to recognize that yep all right I think I want to keep going and learn and develop a different area of my playing so I need to look for someone who can give me that as my teacher yeah may not be able to and I think remembering that everyone can offer something different and everyone mm, will have a different area of specialty and that it's okay. And hopefully, you know, if you have a good relationship with your teacher, then that they can, you know, respect that. And, you know, I think it's always good if you have like that kind of, I want to say open relationship because this is just getting weird. But, you know, I, I really advocate for learning from multiple teachers and, yeah, I think it's you know, necessary. getting a broad, broad education and, yeah. um, which is, you know, why if you're doing a music course, that's awesome. Like, take all the masterclass opportunities that you oh, can get. absolutely. Because when you have to pay for it yourself, it's hard. <laughs> yep, it is. And it's yeah. quite expensive. Um, yeah. But, yeah, absolutely. If you've got visiting um, artists coming over to take the workshops, just sign your name up. I know it's nerve-wracking, but it's so, so worth it. Um, yeah. Um, were there any factors other than having to change based because of, of needing to work on 
um, your injuries and trying to work through them, that influenced um, you choosing a teacher in any other part of your piano career? Um, yeah, I think actually, and it wasn't really me, it was my mum. But when I was in high school, I so I started off <laughs> once I graduated from the van and <laughs> went to high school. I was learning from a you know just the teacher that worked at the school, and he was pretty great. And then he left, um, unfortunately, when I was just about to start. Damn. Um, yeah, like he was it's all a shame right. When that happens. Yeah, <laughs> and so they, I was just about to start my final two years of school. Um, we call it VCE here in Melbourne, but I don't know. I think in different places it's called different things. But basically, the last two years of high school. I don't actually think it's called VCE anymore. I think it's got a different name, but I can't remember. No, yeah. it is. It's just oh, into schools are different. Oh, that's yeah. right. You're right, you're yeah. right, you're right. Everything. Anyway. We're getting old. We've been out of the system for too oh, long. <laughs> um, but yeah, like wherever you are in the world, like the final kind of years of school where you start to specialize and, you know, your exams determine what you get into after mm-hmm. school and things like that. And this new teacher kind of came along and it was really scary because she was um, very different personality to my previous teacher who'd been quite laid back and, you know, you, when you learn with a teacher for a while, I think you kind of get into this habit of they know what you need yeah. to be taught. And so this new person came in and I, I can't remember her name for the life of me, but it's probably a good thing. But she <laughs> and I clashed a lot. Mm. And when I told her that I was doing this VCE music um, class, she laughed at me and said, like, you'll never get into university. That's horrible. It was horrible. It was probably a good wake-up call because I mm. wasn't very good at that point and I didn't practice enough. Yeah. Um, but also then she didn't really support me in the way that I needed and I didn't flourish under her yeah um you know and it was not a problem with her it was just that we clashed and her teaching style was very I would say um hands off in the sense that she'd kind of be like well you need to go practice this and tell me what to do didn't really help me Mm. And then, but the one good thing that she did do though for me is that she recommended that I go to the team of pianists, Mm -hmm. which is that spring school we were talking about. And um, we, which is where you are now and I met. (laughs) Beginning of a lifelong friendship. Yeah. And (laughs) (laughs) it sounded really insincere. I'm sorry. (laughs) At least I think. Awkward. Sorry, I might have other plans. That's okay. She just announced it. I'm going to go solo with this podcast. This is not going on for me today. I'm sorry. But yeah, like when I got there, I kind of started to see, well, this is what other teachers are like. And this is what the standard for everyone Mm. else is like. And, you know, I'm because, you know, when you're in school, especially if you're learning from school, you're kind of a big fish in a small pond. Mm. And I was like, wow, I need to get a teacher that can do what these guys are doing for me. And luckily my mum worked in another school and she was talking to the music teacher there who recommended someone. Um... Can I say her name? I think I can say Julie Haskell. She's okay, cool. a wonderful piano teacher um, and musician and, um, you know, wonderful music person in Melbourne who does a lot for the music teaching community. Mm-hmm. And she had a particularly amazing talent of being able to pick pieces for me that matched my level but also my my strengths as well. Oh, that's really good. Yeah. That's so important in teacher. Oh, it really is. It's, um, you know... 
Is it's one thing to pick, you know, a piece that interests a student. Yeah. But, you know, more so often students pick pieces that are way beyond their capability. Yeah. So because she was, it sounds cool. Yeah. You just want to play it. Exactly. You and don't quite realise how hard it is. Yeah. So she was <laughs> really... All the oh, all the, I do it still. <laughs> the basis of my, my yeah. piano playing. <laughs> yeah. But um, she was really good at picking pieces. You know, it, her knowledge of repertoire must have been amazing. Mm. But she was really good at picking pieces that would have, like, really suited what I wanted to do, mm. but also technically what I was capable of. And at the same time, was able to help me build my technique through that. So yeah. she was amazing. And that was one of those moments where I think, you know, if you're in that situation where you're with a teacher, where you're just clashing or it's not working, I think it's really worthwhile to, to move on. And it's nothing against that teacher that I had, yeah. you know, it's not her fault. It's just, we had different styles. And at that particular time, I was a pretty bad student and I needed someone that was, you know, um, going to help me in the way that I needed. So, mm. yeah. Have you mm. had any other um, times like that in your life? No, I was, pr- I, I think I've been pretty lucky with the teachers that I've had. I've seemed to got on, got on with everyone. Um, and yeah, I, I started learning off just sort of like the local piano teacher. And I think I'd been learning with her for about nine years and just realized that I wanted to sort of, um, take piano seriously and, and do it you know, pursue it as a career. And she recommended that I go and attend this piano, the spring piano school. And that really opened my mind to what else was happening and where I could go with it. And I really realized, I really realized, I realized that (laughs) if I was serious about this, I had to change teacher. And so, um, you know, I was very open with her and we had a good discussion around it. And, um, she was, um, very supportive of the decision. And so, yeah, I started learning off Robert Chamberlain after that in year 12 and stayed with him for most of my undergrad, well, for all of my undergrad. And then, again, Robert um, focused a lot on technique. Um, so that was – they were good lessons. He was he was a pretty funny, funny person. He's a good teacher. <laughs> I've done some lessons with him yeah. too. He's an amazing He's teacher. He's just one of those yeah. teachers <laughs> that um, could spend a, like a full lesson on a couple of hours. Isn't that – yeah, I yeah. love those lessons. They're good <laughs> lessons. You sort of come out feeling really good. And you just realised, oh, there's a whole, you know, a couple of hundred bars in this piece that I probably need to look at too. Um, yeah, can I have more hours, please? <laughs> yes. Um, no, so Robert was really, really good and he really, like, it was the same sort of thing. Um, Anne didn't really focus on my technique, sort of did a little bit of a dozen a day exercises that yeah, you know, right. taught oh, you a little bit of technique, but I really didn't enjoy it. And I think I just sort of went about it and um, just learnt you know, the pieces that I wanted to learn. She didn't really influence um, my technique one way or another. And Robert was sort of really pulled, pulled it, my whole playing apart. And it was like having to learn the piano again because I yeah, just, you right. know, went down to very basic five note, um, five finger technique where you just play the notes in a row, make and really focus on the, the movement that your wrist was making. Yeah, right. And um, yeah, and so he was really good. It was, they were really frustrating years as well because I just wanted to play and, and but I had to really focus on the, yeah totally <laughs> on the technique and then yeah so and then again it was sort of like a natural sort of progression where I then went on to my next teacher and then again onto the teacher still and but I sort of always knew what I wanted in a teacher and I always had a few different like, con, like consultation lessons with with them to sort of try and work out whether we would get on whether they were suited to me. And yeah, because I mean, I, I paid for my own lessons and so I didn't want to spend my money on someone who I didn't think would be That's a good point. Yeah, totally. Um, I think it's really important to be able to get on with your teacher because you can be, you are quite vulnerable playing an instrument. 
Um, yeah, it's that's just not right. the physical side. It's the emotional side and the way that you interpret something. You could do, you know, and how they react as well can, as we've mentioned, can influence. Yes, that's um, very true. How you go forward. So it's really quite a vulnerable um, thing playing it, the instrument, and your teachers are quite vital in that. Yeah, and I think there's something really special about the relationship between a music student and their teacher. Mm. I know that when I was at high school, my favorite teachers were my instrumental teachers. Yeah. Um, you know, and you'd, you'd go from being in class or having something happen outside and you'd be really angry and you'd go in. I remember going and I'd just like sit there whinging to my trumpet teacher for ages. And then he'd be like, all right, let's play something now and just get it all out. And yeah. they're almost like therapists in a way, yeah. you know, Absolutely. Um, I think that bond of having a one-to-one teacher is something really special. Yeah. And I think that it, um, I know that some of my students' parents have said that to me as well, which makes me feel, you know, very privileged and mm. um, grateful for, you know, that we can have these kind of relationships with our students where you have – it's more of like an adult relationship rather – okay, this is really sounding bad now. <laughs> but, you know, you know what I mean? Like no, it, it's, it's less disciplinarian and you're not like some, you know, teacher standing up at a chalkboard spouting no. out instructions. You're there working with someone and for, I think – for young people, that's really empowering to have lessons where you're kind of collaborating with them and you're working yeah. together and you're not kind of condescending and you're not, you're not the, you know, the keeper of power and they're not doing your bidding, but you're working together to build something. And yeah, yeah I think it's really important. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's a good bit about teachers. <laughs> quite a bit of time. We talked that. a lot about that. If you, if you have, um, any stories about teachers you'd like to pass on or share with us, please don't hesitate to get in, t- in touch. Yeah. Um, or if you are a teacher and if you're any of our teachers, thank you. We love you. Yeah, we we've do. All, we've been really lucky to have some wonderful teachers. Absolutely. I know a few of our friends have had some not so wonderful yes, experiences true. with teachers, but I think both you and I, Joanna, we've learned from some of the best. And yeah, I think so. Just really grateful for all that we've been taught. So I think that's Absolutely. worth that's worth repeating, you mm. know, thank you. And if you're a student, go and thank your teacher. Do. Let them know, you know. Give them a bottle of wine or something. Yeah, give teachers love wine. They do. <laughs> um, so I think it's time we uh, move on to our next segment around our feature piece. Feature piece. It's Marla time. It is Marla time. Hey. Um, so I should preface this by saying this <laughs> month, Joanna and I were very, very, very busy. Um, can we talk about what you're doing or is it a secret? Uh, at work? Yeah. No, absolutely not. It's probably a good way to get it out. Yeah, let's bit. plug it. Go. Um, <laughs> so I've been working as, I don't know if I had this job when the episode started, but I uh, was recently promoted to education officer at Victorian Opera. Amazing. And um, we are piloting a new education program this year um, that really makes opera quite accessible to teachers and students around all over the state, even in the most remotest part of the state. So basically what it is, is we've got our student opera this year is Hansel and Gretel by Engelbert Humperdinck. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> it's showing at the Arts Centre and it's been split so that schools within 150 kilometres of Arts Centre Melbourne um, buy tickets to go and see the show. And with that, they get four workshops that are live streamed into the um, classroom. Oh, wow. And those schools outside of 150 kilometres get the whole program live streamed, including the performance. That's so cool. Um, Yeah. The first workshop looks at opera as an art form and how um, 
how it's different to other art forms. We also look at the different voice types and it will feature a singer come in and show us how um, she learns to sing. The second workshop is around the fairy tale of Hansel and Gretel and explores that a little bit more. Seeing as the opera is being sung in its original German with English scene description, we're actually going to incorporate a little bit of German language in that workshop. Cool. Um, The third workshop takes you behind the scenes into the rehearsal room so you actually get to meet the director and the cast of the production and you'll um, be able to experience what a rehearsal is like and how um, each different part of the opera is practiced and put together. And the final um, workshop is live stream from Art Centre Melbourne and you'll see the set go up on stage and learn a little bit about the bump-in process and also... um, look at an orchestral rehearsal of the score of Hansel and Gretel and you'll learn about all the different uh, musical instruments involved in the orchestra and also the role of the conductor and what they do. Uh, so it's all quite good. You learn a lot about the different t- parts of opera and putting it all together before you go and see the performance at Art Centre Melbourne. That is so cool. If you want more information, please visit Victorian Opera Access All Areas. That's the name of the program and you can find out more and the dates as well. It starts on the 18th of May and runs until the 8th of June. That is so good. So any music teachers that are listening, really get in touch. Yeah, get your schools involved. It's actually quite an awesome program and I think um, it covers a lot of different learning areas in the Australian curriculum um, and it really is something that... I'm quite passionate about because it gets music into schools without really having to have a music program or an understanding about music. And opera is quite an awesome art form and it's very powerful, especially if you like go and see it. Yeah. Because voice is a very powerful tool and just combined with music and the story, it's it's really quite amazing. That's so cool. Um, can I go to one? <laughs> you won't be able to see the um as you're not a student, you won't be able to see the school's performance, but you can see the, um, there is a general public um, performance of Hansel and Gretel cool. on the 12th of June and 9th of June. Amazing. Um, yeah, so it's it's pretty exciting. So cool. Wow, you have been busy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've just got boring excuses. But anyway, so because we've been so busy, um, we've, and I should say that Ioana's done most of the background work on this I've been really <laughs> slack this do. I've phoned it in this time um but yeah we we thought we might take the opportunity um because neither of us had really had time to play um and we thought we might take the opportunity to look at a symphonic piece mm-hmm. now because we can't play the music on the podcast here we thought we'd recommend a few different um recordings that you might want to look at um you can look them up after you listen to the podcast um but we'll we'll talk about it in detail, and we might even sing some of the excerpts. Yes. I think is our plan. Yuan is trying to convince me to do we'll this. Do I bet you, if just... you're familiar with this, I wonder if you can guess <laughs> what it's going to be. But <sighs> all right. <laughs> but yeah. So um, as Yuan has said up the top, we're going to do um, Gustav Mahler's Symphony Number no. One in D Major. That's right. So. I've looked up some facts about Mahler um, to give you a bit of background about him. I've really phoned it in this week or month. I'm sorry, uh, but, you know, um, life gets busy. busy. (laughs) um, For those of you who aren't familiar with Mahler, he is an Austrian composer um, who was born in the late 19th century. And he was born in Bohemia, which I don't, I mean, I think I've been there, but I don't know. Is it still called Bohemia now? I don't think it is. No. I'm not too sure. I did go to Austria and it's such a beautiful country, but Bohemia just gives it this nice, really kind of sets the scene for you, I think, mm, in definitely. terms of 
what what to expect. Um, I so he Marla was a composer, but what I didn't know is that he was composing was kind of his side job. Mm. Um, I've only really known Marla for his symphonies. Yeah. Um, and looking doing a little bit of research, I should say that I got most of my information from uh, the book Marla: A Biography by Jonathan Carr. And yeah, so Marla didn't write all that many pieces um, comparatively. Um, compared to most composers but that's because as I said it was kind of his um his side job his main job was as a conductor and musical director Mm -hmm. which I never knew I um I had no idea and so he was the conductor and director of the Vienna Court Opera for 10 years um which I believe was a little bit tricky for him he had to kind of prove his German-ness yeah, at some yeah, point, that's right. yeah, um, which is kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, apparently, he did that by playing lots of Wagner. <laughs> um, and then I also didn't know that he actually went off to the US, um, which is funny because we often think about, in terms of thinking about classical in the lowercase mm. sense of the word music. Um, I forget that you know around this era, people started to travel a lot more, and they made it over to the US. So. Yeah. I did not know that he was actually the director of the New York Metropolitan Opera and the New York Philharmonic um, around the start of the 20th century. Um, he wasn't very liked as a conductor. Really? Yes. Not Why? many people liked to work with him. He was very, um, uh, I think he was just really, he asked a lot of his players and well, he had a way of um, <laughs> conducting that was quite uh, abrasive. And so it was sort of, yeah. He was very aggressive and he had these ideas in his mind that people just couldn't play for him. And so he just got really, really frustrated. And he he had a lot of, um, he was often an assistant conductor, I think, earlier in his career as well to some of the the lead organisations. And he would just, he had so many falling outs with all of them. Good on him. (laughs) It wasn't an easy life for him. Follow your heart. That's what I say. You do you, Marla. Quite a confused and troubled man. Um. So other than that, I haven't really, there wasn't much that I got off in my brief little bit of research (laughs) other than um, I did see a bit that kept getting repeated and I traced it back to this book um, and I couldn't really find much else about it. But apparently, and I feel a bit weird about talking about this, um, having talked about disability and chronic injury earlier on today, um, (laughs) but apparently he had a bit of an odd walk, um, a bit, it was a bit jerky and People apparently, you know, speculated whether he had a bit of a limp or a tick or something, which, you know, props to him if he did, no no big deal. But an interesting thing, which this is why I wanted to bring it up because I found it interesting. Apparently his daughter um, said, though, that it, it's not, it wasn't a physical problem that he had, but he was actually just like singing music in his head and he was changing um, the rhythm each time. So he was kind of like just walking around dancing to the tempo. You know, or like to the to the rhythm of whatever was in his head, which I realise I kind of do a bit. <laughs> so you, go. you know, often um, I remember I used to have a job as a receptionist where I wasn't really doing very much. Um, and I would sit there kind of like, you know, tapping things or like just dropping my pen. I've got a pen here. Like <laughs> that was supposed to be the wedding march. Oh, yeah. <laughs> probably I don't know if that'll pick up on the microphone <laughs> but you know like I just do like weird things like that that are so like subconscious um or like just kind of dance in my yeah, desk yeah. a bit yeah. and then you know I like the idea that that's kind of a sweet way of putting it and even if maybe if he did have you know some sort of disability or something that's a nice way of thinking of it too yeah you know I know a lot of people I mean I work with lots of people who are autistic or who have different disabilities and some of them have 
like ticks that they do and things like that. And I think it's always nice to reframe them as well. Is it a problem for them? No, they, they're no. quite happy. You know, yeah. it's not a big deal. Um, so I like that idea of, you know, changing the rhythm in your head and it's just a way of physically expressing that. That's kind of nice. <laughs> anyway, that was my thing that I found quite interesting, interesting. about Marla. Um, and, you know, I reckon if you're dancing along to the rhythm in your head, follow the beat of your own drum, go for it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, good life lesson. <laughs> anyway, on to the symphony. Yeah, so the symphony number one in D major was, it was reworked a number of times between its first premiere in 1889 and um, in 1900. Do you know, do you know why? Yes, and I will tell you. Oh. (laughs) Um, So it was first, as I said, performed in um, 1889 in Budapest and um, it wasn't received very well by the audience. I think it was because they didn't really get what was happening. It was just so many different musical ideas that came through. And it just sort of, it was really, he, he, was, he was really changing the way that a symphony or a symphony was um, written and played. That's right, because he doesn't follow like your standard no. symphonic structure, no, does he? No, not at all. Was that the first time that it happened though? No, I think prior to him, people like Berlioz and Liszt were changing the way symphonies were written in that um, they helped bring along this idea of program music. Um, and so program music was basically... Um, a way it gave composers the freedom to express certain feelings without being restricted to the symphonic structure that came before that came in the classical period and this had um so that that had more strict rules around the structure and form and the modulation of keys where that was supposed to go so a lot of the conductors within the romantic period really pushed those boundaries because they wanted to um they wanted to strengthen the relationship between music and how it could express certain feelings around life. I mean, that the Romantic period was also a period in which, you know, there was a lot of reflection around being human, your emotion, emotional side of being human and life in general. It's a really deep, deep period. Whoa. Um, yeah. <laughs> so in um, program music in a, um, can um, be presented in a number of ways in this symphony. So you've got a symphonic, symphonic poem, I should say, which is a type of program music, which is um, an instrumental work that has a literary or pictor- pictorial association. So they're usually titled or they're accompanied by a program that the composer has provided. So this, it's usually, a symphonic poem is usually a one movement work um, with contrasting musical ideas that developed a poetic idea, such as a scene or they created a mood. Okay. Yeah. So this work... Um, presented a number of musical ideas. Um, some of Mahler's earlier compositions made it in. Also, um, ideas that Liszt, Franz Liszt, and Wagner had um, incorporated in some of their music. It also drew from folk songs and military fanfares, um, na- nature sounds such as bird songs. Yeah, he's really evocative in his he compositions, is. isn't he? And yeah. this work is especially like that. I think some of the so originally the piece was just sort of. When it was first performed, no one really understood it. So a lot of Mahler's friends encouraged him to write a program to go alongside it so that they could understand what he ah, was trying to convey. That's interesting. So he did that. For the next couple of performances, he decided to write up a descriptive poem. And he gave titles to each of the movement as well as the entire work. So he called the entire work Titan, a poem in symphonic form. And that was named after a popular novel um, by the, of the same name by Jean-Paul. Was the, that... Sorry, can I interrupt? Go for it. Did he have that in mind when he was composing it? Or is it more this kind of need to... 
Um, I don't think that he did. I think it was just a need okay. to try and, and make people understand. But there were certainly ideas that um, that um, and feelings that influenced what he was trying to convey. So he called the first movement the waking of nature after a long winter. And you really can hear that in the movement if you listen to it. Mm, There's totally. a very distinct cuckoo, cuckoo, cuckoo. Cuckoo? Cuckoo. Cuckoo. <laughs> of a bird waking up and it's sort of slowly everything's sort of coming together different things are coming out and before you know the overall sort of melody comes along and it really does sound like things are waking up um the second movement which was so the 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 symphonic work was actually five movements originally the second movement was later eliminated oh i don't know why um but the third movement was a scherzo and usually in traditional symphonic structure the, the scherzo which is a bit more of a faster tempo is um, placed third in all the movements while the slow movement is the second one but he switched them mm. so the third movement which then became the second movement was the um, the wind in my sails is basically a dance it was a, a folk dance and it was taken from his earlier, earlier piece of Hansel and Gretel funnily enough yeah. um, there we go nice the dance, tie the dance yeah. um, sequence <laughs> in Hansel and Gretel the th- fourth movement which then became the third movement was called the hung uh, the hunter's funeral based on the um, a woodwork piece that um, I I think his name was uh, Moritz von Schwind who was a friend of Schubert he did this piece a woodwork a woodcut piece where it, ah. it basically had um, a funeral procession of animals. Made up of animals that were carrying the coffin of a, a hunter. <gasps> oh my gosh! Yeah. I never knew that. That's yeah. amazing. And oh, it, I just love this piece even more this now. Is, this, this is the. <laughs> so this cool. is how I came across the symphony. I think it was when I was studying in Italy. I basically took classes around music, and the lecturer introduced this piece that way. And it was it, the theme. The main musical melody is based on the Frere Jacques. Now, this is where we're going to sing. Uh, <laughs> I haven't warmed up there. That's okay. Um, so. You might know, dear listeners, the Frere Jacques, more as as Brother John. And I've got the lyrics here ready for us. Oh, uh, can we do the French version or the... Let's do the English. Do we have to? Well, we can, but I'm not very good at French pronunciation. Okay. Let's do the, the English. So okay. this was a um a children children's nursery rhyme. I'm sure you've all heard it at yes, some point. You know. Yeah. And it was usually sung in a round. And a round is basically when the melody begins and then it begins again. So for example, are you sleeping? Are you sleeping, Brother John? Brother John, morning bells are ringing, morning bells are ringing, ding dang dong, ding dang dong, morning bells are ringing, morning bells are ringing, ding dang dong, ding dang dong. So that's around and it sort of keeps happening and keeps happening. And Marla does that in the third movement by starting starting it in the double basses, which was rare in itself. And then moving through the different um, instruments. And he chose quite diverse timbres so that it would stand out. Oh, yeah, it's quite it's cool. so true, yeah. And so the story, there is a story behind the the, um, the hunter's funeral as well. It was apparently a um, Austrian folk 
old folk story that was well known among um, children in Marla's time. And the narrative was told through the eyes of forest animals. And they told of the burial of a hunter whose funeral procession is comprised of wild animals instead of humans. So like um, boars and rabbits and foxes and all that sort of thing. And the animals seem to be getting a lot of pleasure out of this occasion, as you might imagine they would be. Yeah. And there's rabbits leading the processions with banners and (laughs) music sung by all the animals. And this is what. But Marla puts it in a minor key and it's really quite eerie. And this was the movement that was really... um, the audience did not like it. Right. It just really upset them because they didn't quite understand what was going on. But at the top of this movement, um, he writes with parody, which sort of implies a satiric nature to it. Like it was, he was sort of mocking it. It wasn't. Right. So it wasn't supposed to be very yeah. dark. It was kind of like a tongue in cheek. Yeah, exactly. Right. And in the middle, like the um, brother John sort of melody is, comes across quite serious and you know minor and then it goes into a bit of a dance in the middle and then it comes back to that it's quite interesting um and this yeah that's i think my favorite movement the last movement is called dal inferno and it's or from hell and it basically starts with like a lightning flash and it's a quite temptuous and it was to display the sudden explosion of desire coming from a deeply wounded heart which was marla's words himself wow um <laughs> yeah so it was quite quite interesting it was very vivid he had obviously quite um strong ideas behind it but he didn't like that he had to sort of put these titles to it so he ended ended up just dropping them all together towards the end um and he just called it symphony in d major wow yeah i um, never knew all of this yeah it's well, amazing because it, part of the reason was that he didn't want to limit the music's range of possible meanings as well just fair enough which yeah. is what sometimes program music can do because it's obviously trying to give you an idea of what the music is mm. supposed to be conveying um so yeah so it was. It's a really, really interesting piece, and I really recommend that you have a listen to it. And in its entirety, the the last movement is quite, quite awesome. I was telling Zara before that I was listening to it last night, and at one point in the final movement, sort of, there's just really nice, silent, quiet part just sort of started playing, and just sort of went back and was looking at the recording and watching the the orchestra members play, and it was just you could see it was just. It's so nice. It really is. Just I don't know. I don't have the words. But you'll hear in the last movement as well that some of the themes, musical ideas from the first movement come back in. So it's all sort of um, cu- coming together. And it sort of is a way of dis- of searching for victory. Um, yeah. So he's trying to overcome everything that he's been through um, he's, and he's he make, manages to make it in the end. If you do want to find out where um, I've taken all this information, I will put a couple links up on the Facebook page. But I would strongly rec- recommend listening to um, the recording that is conducted by Claudio Aral. Oh, sorry, Claudio Abado. And it's the Lucerne Festival Orchestra. Um, it's quite, I think it's a, the second one or something that comes up when you search on YouTube. It's Well, it's we can put a link onto it and um, the proper credits as well. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it's such an amazing recording. It is, and it's a very good, um, or, uh, it's a very good performance of it done by Claudio. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. So that's the piece for this week. Fantastic. Mom. Thanks, Joanna. That's no super, um, super cool. Like I love the... There's so much about Marla that I didn't know. You know, I think Marla's one of those um, big composers, I guess, that I don't listen to very often no. because I feel like you have to be in a particular mind state 
and mood and space to listen to Marlowe mm. in. It's it, they're epic. They are. They're really big they pieces. They are very, very big works. It's not something to listen to if you're going to have to get out of the car halfway through. No. You know, or if no. you're kind of multitasking. It's really a, you know, yeah. a special event to listen to Marlowe. And they're long works. Like, each one is about an hour long. Mm. I think the shortest is 40 minutes. So, yeah. it does require some time dedication, but it is very much worth it. Yeah. Um... So that's the piece for the month. Fantastic. Thank you very much. No worries. Alrighty. So that brings us to our final segment for the episode. Aww, Everyone's favourite time. <laughs> it's scale of the month. <laughs> oh no, what was yours? Scale of the month. I'm not doing that again. <laughs> Done enough singing this episode. Every now and then, like, because I, when I sing, you know, with friends and stuff, I don't put much effort. Well, I, I don't want to say I don't put effort in, but it always comes out very bad. Yeah. But then I remember it's actually my job to sing. Yeah, you know, totally also maybe why at you work. <laughs> no, but also like then I'm like, maybe I should try and like present myself as a good singer because otherwise people will think I'm really bad at my job, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but anyway. Um, so we actually had someone send us in a... A recording of last month's scale of C sharp minor, and it's amazing. It's pretty cool. <laughs> it's not your usual sort of what we've been doing, just playing a scale. The bar has been set. The you guys. bar definitely has been set. Yeah. So this month we have a good friend of the podcast and one of our noisemen, Nick Marturano, who is you know obviously he's one of our noisemen, so we we are indebted to him in terms <laughs> of getting our own recordings out. Yes. Um. But yeah, I think he was probably feeling a bit bored seeing as we didn't bother to record anything this month. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Nick. But he did send us a recording of himself. And I'm just going to check what he wrote because I am not a jazz musician and I'm bad at this. Um, But Nick... So Nick started out with us at Monash. He did, yeah. And he learnt classical music and did his degree. But now he's exploring jazz. Um, And so he's taken some jazz lessons and he's amazing. Yeah. Um, So, which is really cool. I love it when people transition into different styles yeah, like absolutely. I wish I could do that yeah, it's me too. so full on you know as a classical musician I'm like Ugh, jazz like not that I don't like jazz I love jazz but I playing it scares the yeah. daylights out me of me too. the thought of playing it um maybe Nick can give us a lesson sometimes yes, so he says that this is a C sharp natural minor scale improv over a two five one in E major even Lol. text in jazz lingo yes <laughs> over a two five one so here it is enjoy
so good holy yeah. smokes that was amazing feeling pretty chilled after that one i would say feeling pretty chilled after that chilled one. yeah totally i i'm kind of nervous though because i'm thinking that's so cool and now we have to <laughs> do creative things with, with our the... scales <laughs> all right so what is our scale of the month this week you it is the flat major Woo! yay and zara's gonna have a go i am and when i left home before and i told Dan, our other sound man, that I was going to do this one, he said, why did you pick the hardest key? <laughs> I was like, is it the hardest key? On piano it is. And piano apparently. It's just a bit awkward. Dan, That's right. should have brought my trumpet. <laughs> oh, oh, I've got a cornet in my room. If you I don't know how to play cornet. Oh, it's the same. Is it? Yeah, it's the same. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll give it a crack. Please be kind. <laughs> Go for it. bit at the end is that inspired by nick it was very inspired <laughs> not executed well but inspired by nick <laughs> awesome thank you zara for doing that and for choosing to play the hardest say or really i should say for agreeing to play the hardest scale for us i'm skeptical as to whether it's the hardest scale we we're talking about this in terms of like technique wise it doesn't just pretty hard because yeah. it's the whole all the white keys it's yeah. hard to make it sound even yeah, totally. Yeah, I yeah. have a I have a ring finger issue though with the B flat major scale that kind of creeps me out. Oh really? Yeah, kind of with my retraining it I feel like it's something that I need to choreograph a lot in order to play it well. <laughs> so Well you played it pretty well that Thank time. Thank you. So, yeah. It wasn't wasn't as bad as my first <laughs> week, so that's good. Um, cool. Well that just about brings us to the end of the show today. Thank you very much for listening. Yeah, we hope you enjoyed it. It was a bit different, not as much music, but um quite interesting all the same. I hope you enjoyed us hearing us blab on about ourselves for yes. an hour <laughs> no we've, we've had fun i hope you have too yeah um please if we'd love to hear from you we've got a couple of planned guest spots coming up in the next few months with yeah, some very um, local musicians some mates of ours who we think have some interesting things to say about their musical experiences um but if you're listening even if you're not in melbourne if you'd like to phone in um and do you know a chat to us over the phone we'd love that or if you wanted just to send us something in writing we'd love to read out your stories and you know we really want people to engage with this this is we're really looking at fostering a bit of a community here yeah, and definitely. getting everyone back involved in playing and being musical and forgetting about all those you know the stresses of learning and things like that mm, absolutely so if you do want to get in touch with us you can email us at i used to play podcast at gmail.com also, don't forget to let us know if you want to sign up to our open mic night. That's right. Yeah. It's um, coming up in the next couple of months and we really would love a couple of people to just get up and play. It doesn't have to be perfect. Yeah. Let us know if you're keen and then we'll, we can talk with you about picking a date that suits and stuff yeah. like that. We're flexible. We just want to get this ball rolling. Mm -hmm. um, and don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 
And now, some of you may have noticed, but you might already be listening to us via this, but we're now on iTunes. We're legit. Sort of. We still only have one mic, but we're working on that too. We're looking at getting (laughs) some proper equipment so we don't sound so spacey. It sounds Um, okay for now. I think it's just It's all right. Oh, yes. <laughs> now it would be nice to have some proper mics. So um, I, I should say, Dan, our sound man, is constantly yelling at us for clapping too loudly and laughing too much. Can you much. not laugh at the same time, please? <laughs> I'm sorry. Ha! How do you like that, Dan? <laughs> sorry. We should invite the hand that beats. He does a wonderful job at mixing our recordings, very, and very we don't make it easy for him at all. So thank you, Dan. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, huge thanks to Dan and for Nick for your contributions to the podcast, our sound man. Yes. Thank you to everyone who's contacted us over the last couple couple of episodes we really love your support um but yeah if you're listening to us on itunes rate and review us please um do. these help us get promoted and get other people to listen to so um if you feel kind please give us a nice rating <laughs> remember we're only doing our best <laughs> you're like begging now this is getting a bit sad that's all right but until next month stay musical yay bye bye bye